Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast for the relentlessly curious. This season, our host and Applied Curiosity Lab's chief curiosity seeker, Becky Saltzman, will be sharing the studio with ACL's chief experience producer and favorite sister, Jennifer Felberg. The lens is, and always will be, curiosity. Each week, fun informal conversations center around one delectable curiosity bite, designed to give your brain the time and ideas to think about thinking, to flex your curiosity muscle, and maybe even revolutionize the way you think. One of the scariest things that I have ever experienced was on the Great Wall of China when we were there with our kids. Barkley was eight, maybe. Dane was five, maybe. And we took a three and a half hour ride out. And this was, you know, years ago. So China was much more rural outside of of, uh, Beijing. And we took this long van ride out to the rural part of China to take hike on a less uh, trodden part of the Great Wall. So it was a much more remote part of the Great Wall. And we were climbing up and there was a woman that was kind of helping Dane. She didn't speak any English. She had like three teeth. So cute. And Stephen was way up the Great Wall, way up the wall, taking his pictures. And all of a sudden, Barkley says, ow, ow, ow. And he's like grabbing his back. And I looked on his back and there were maybe a half a dozen welts on his back. And I said, oh, that doesn't look good. And then he said, mom, mom, I I can't breathe. This was a moment where I knew that how I reacted on the outside was going to be completely different than how I felt on the inside. And that that difference was going to have a huge impact on the outcome. So I acted very nonchalant couldn't call Steven up the wall because I figured that would be stressful and I didn't want, oh my God. I said, okay, Barb, you know, that's totally fine. Let's drink some water and start heading back down. Meanwhile, you know, we were walking like one foot in front of the other on this crumbling wall and trying to communicate to this woman who spoke no English and I spoke no Chinese, no Mandarin, how to get Dane back down the wall. We're starting to make our way and he's like, mom, mom. Dane or Barkley? Dane, because I'm guiding Barkley and Dane oh. with this woman and I'm trying to kind of say, come on, come on, but I'm guiding Barkley. And I'm like, oh, Barkley, you know, this is normal. Just drink some water. You'll be fine. He's like, mom, I can't breathe. Oh that was a moment in time that was probably my scariest moment. But I think about that as a time where I managed to, and you know, who knows, I don't have a counterfactual to know what the outcome would have been. But my guess is if I had panicked Barkley, the little bit of opening that was there for him to eke out the breath would have closed. And we made our way back down and hours later, slowly, but sure, of course I had Benadryl back at the apart at the hotel, but that was a lot of good that does you. And I told some people, like, oh, call 911. Yeah. Like, Come on. Anyway, so we made our way back and obviously he survived, but it was one of the most stressful times of my life. And that leads me to the curiosity bite. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. When was there a time that you acted nonchalant when you were going crazy inside? Okay, your story is pretty serious. Mine, not so much. (laughs) Oh, good. You got to have a variety. (laughs) Okay, I think it was about a year ago, maybe two years ago. I was sitting, actually, Sunny came and got me. 
And he said, come out to the deck and look what, what this is. And we looked out into the sky and every few seconds there was this looked like aliens flying in, a, in an erratic manner around and then another one would come and another one would come and it was like I could not for the life of me figure out what it was and Ginger and Moses came out and they were like what is this and I was like oh oh it's it's the same like with you <laughs> with the not being able to breathe but this was what you I, think it was why were you so worried I I honestly I was thinking oh my god I mean what if you came across aliens oh you thought it was aliens what i know it sounds stupid but what if you did like what if you were out somewhere and all of a sudden a, a flying saucer came down like what would you do and that was sort of what my mind was going through i was like I, oh i would clinch, my god clinch my buns because i would not be wanted to be having an anal probe <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, I really thought, I do not know what this is. I've never seen anything like this before. Why would you be scared? Because you thought- I wasn't necessarily scared. I was going crazy inside. I was like, holy shit. And I didn't want to like freak out the kids, you know? <laughs> and guess what it turned out to be? What? Those, <laughs> I don't even want to say. <laughs> Those Asian lanterns. Those fiery Asian lanterns. Someone, like, a couple blocks down kept putting them up, 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 and, and there were, like, a hundred of them. Well, at least it wasn't, like, the twinkling lights on your own balcony. That would have been even No, dumb. it was really weird looking. I've never seen anything like that. I've seen those Asian lantern things flying up during the day or close to me, but I had never seen anything like that in the night sky. It was so freaky. So that was my, <laughs> actually, I was telling Moses that I was going to tell that story. <laughs> and he goes, mom, you're going to sound dumb. So don't say that on, <laughs> don't say that on the podcast. What? And I, said, had to worry I have to, if we had to worry what? about sounding dumb, we would never do the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I got to be me, Mose. I got to be me. <laughs> be me. Well, the chronic stress that comes from holding in the stressful things can trigger this sympathetic nervous system's fight or flight. And there's, according to research from the most prestigious university of all, PU, Harvard Medical School, oh. this, this slows down digestion and can result in gas, bloating, constipation, and vomiting. So if you're with someone and they're in a stressful situation and you see them acting all calm and then you smell something. <laughs> You know <laughs> that we know damn well thing. what's going on. You know what's going on, and then <laughs> the, there's also a lot of uh, people who claim that there are myofascial trigger points that are formed as part of an overuse of the muscle. So, for example, if you're someone who holds in your emotions a lot, that which I do all the time, clench your jaw. You just let it flow. I know. I am an open book. But I do clench my jaw a lot. So Well, then you might be holding in emotions. And also, the uh, corrugator muscles in the forehead and the brow tighten. So without Botox, the truth might not set you Is out there. Is <laughs> out there. All right. I'm going to ask you about some situations where I imagine the person was feeling different on the inside than they were projecting on the outside. And you are going to take a guess 
at how they must have been feeling. All right. Okay. Are you ready? Sure. Now, remember back, and George Bush has gotten a lot of criticism when he was reading The Pet Goat. And this was, he was reading this to a group of kindergartners at Emma Booker Elementary School in Sarasota, Florida. I remember. Then Andrew Card approached Bush and whispered in his ear the news that a second plane had hit the World Trade Center, confirming, or suggesting, I should say, not confirming, that a terrorist attack was underway. Now, he was criticized a lot for continuing to read the pet goat or my pet goat. I would I would suggest that now we're just happy to have a president who can read, but, <laughs> but I digress. What do you think was going through his mind? Oh my goodness. So he's reading my pet goat. <laughs> I I'm sure he was in shock and had to just be able to work his brain around how do you react right away to something like that? I'm surprised he was criticized. I mean, I can see how presidents are always criticized by anything that they do, but I don't blame him for just taking a moment and finishing the book and trying to remain calm. And in his brain, he's just probably going a mile a minute trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Like we all were at that time. Right. Yeah. Your kids were older at that time. Older than what? Well, my, my, my son, he was just, they were in elementary school. Born. Yeah. Back in the day during the early days of AIDS, there was a lot of concern about how you could contract AIDS. Mm-hmm. And Lady Di was an early proponent of AIDS research and compassion around AIDS patients. And it was a big deal when she shook the hand of an AIDS patient. What was yep. going through her mind? I'm sure she had to talk herself down a little bit. I don't know if she w- had access to more information than we did. Point. So maybe she wasn't as nervous. But I think even if you have access to that information, you still have a little trepidation. Um, so I think she probably was like, I know this isn't going to do anything to me, but and I've got to show this. I've got to keep a stiff upper lip. But if something happens to me because of this, then it's fine. Then that that's the way I'm going to go. And she probably, that's what I think probably was going on in her mind. What do you think? I think that's good. I think, I, I think that that's a good, as good a guess as any. Right. <laughs> yeah. What about when MLK stood in front of that huge crowd and made his I have a dream speech? He probably was thinking this is a, really cool speech and I'm really excited to give it. But at the same time, I am really nervous to be standing in front of all of these people where many of them want to see me dead. Uh, But this speech is awesome. And I could go down in history with this awesome speech. Good. Okay. I'm not disagreeing with any of your assessments. All right. (laughs) Alala addressed the UN. And remember, she had already been shot in the head and Clearly, the pressure wasn't off. How do you think Malala felt addressing the UN? Well, I think for her, she'd already been through so much that she probably felt a little safer at the UN than she did, you know, in her hometown, going through and trying to get go to school and get other people to go to school. 
However, I think even so, she would feel like she was going to get some backlash because she still is is and was religious and afraid that maybe people from other countries don't understand where she's coming from. Like, why didn't you just do this or why didn't you just do that? And she doesn't understand. They don't understand her religion and her spirituality, but they understand that she has a certain goal and. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> no, I think that's a great guess. I think that she was probably braver. It probably summoned less courage than in front of the UN. Although if I was speaking in front of the UN, I would be completely terrified, planning, yeah. whatever. But I suppose when you have a different level of fear in your day-to-day, it makes other fear like standing in front of a crowd at the UN less of an issue. Right. And she, you know, she was raised with her father was a big speaker and very involved uh, politically and things like that. So she was raised with a little bit more connection to that kind of world, I think. So, yeah, I don't think she would be as scared as I would be. Right. Agreed. (laughs) Yeah. Agreed. All right. This is a different one. And this is one where I I thought a lot about this. I remember when Louise Urzua was the foreman in the mine in Chile when 33 people were trapped for 70 days and how he was drawing like detailed maps of the mine for rescuers. And I remember also what he said when they got out and he said, it's been a bit of a long shift. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think was going through his mind with all of those miners trapped down there as the foreman? And he was the first one out, right? No, he was even the foreman. In- he was the one that orchestrated getting, I and mean, he might have been the last uh, one out. I don't know, but I can't imagine he felt the way he was projecting. I think there was probably a lot of feeling of responsibility for what was happening. He had to, he was probably feeling like he needed to keep the families calm because I'm sure he still didn't know if everybody was going to make it out. I mean, there was, it wasn't there just like a short period of time that we could, they could get out and well, they were there. we were, Oh, you mean from the time they started the- when they started to get out. Yeah. And just to know that what you say is going to have such a huge impact on the families, on the people in there. I, I can't even imagine. And to me, that's the worst so far. That to me is the worst. Yeah. I, I can't even imagine the feeling of guilt, the feeling of responsibility, the feeling of hopelessness in some ways. Oh, the method to the madness. I'm going to ask you the last one because I know you have a list. I hope you have a list. I do a fun one. So this is because these are pretty intense. These are intense, but also there's a method to the order that I'm asking because Mm. some of them are very common where we thought, oh, okay, we whatever. And some of them are ones that would be hard to ponder. And some of them, take us not thinking about the person and how we feel about the person, but putting ourselves true empathy, looking through their eyes and trying to see like you might hate George Bush, but you think to yourself, would you have done something dramatically different without the benefit of hindsight? Right. Last one is Rosa Parks and Mm. a little background that I think is just to kind of remind about Rosa Parks is that she, it wasn't just that Rosa Parks was an individual that that refused to move to the back of the bus. She also was the granddaughter of former slaves who were strong advocates for racial equality. So like Malala, she had family that 
pattern for she was her. raised. Yeah. She was, you know, not that it was easy. Oh my God. Absolutely. It's not easy. It's not at all. But she had parents and grandparents that patterned uh, social justice that might have had an impact on her bravery versus where it came from nowhere. You had no. So what do you think Rosa Parks was thinking as she refused to go to the back of that bus? I would think that she again, she felt this responsibility that she needed to stand up. I bet I bet you she didn't even want to. I bet you she was like, you know, in one one side of her mind was going, you know what, just forget it. Let's just sit here and call it a day and let me get to where I need to go. And then she was like, no, no, this must stop. I need to stand up for it. I need to represent my family. I need to represent my people. No, screw this. I'm doing it. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah, I, I, that's what I would think. Or, or even maybe another alternative was, I am tired physically and I'm tired <laughs> mentally. I'm going to sit here because I'm tired. Yeah. And I don't even really want to do this. That's what I That's what. Yeah, I don't really want to do this, but I, I have to. I have to. And I wonder what, whether this question of feeling torn on the inside and presenting on the outside is a requirement for making change or for leadership. People say don't suppress your emotions or don't suppress. And this is this balance between authenticity and the kind of leadership that we come to expect. And this is where I don't think it's as cut and dry as, you know, you need to be your authentic inner self. Not always. Not always. Mm -mm. Yeah. So I have a fun list. It goes along with what we're talking about, which is what you show on the outside might not be necessarily what's going on or when you're trying to hide what's going on. So they're called poker tells. You know what poker tells are. I know what poker tells. That's why people wear the hats and the bandanas and the glasses to hide right. their expressions or their tells when they're playing poker. Right. And there's this guy that's written um, tons, tons and tons of books, how you can tell what a poker tell is and what it means. Ooh. So I thought I would read it and then you can become a poker master because you will be able to know what those poker tells are. Okay, go. Uh, the first one is, when weak means strong. This is one of those very, very common poker tells. And uh, when you do a lot of sighing and shrugging or you have like a gloomy face, that means that you might have a very strong hand. Uh, it's a natural instinct when attempting to conceal a big hand to try to appear weak. So when you are shrugging and doing all those things, usually means you have, you're, be, beware of those. You could have a good hand, you mean. Yes, they have a very strong and good hand. Can I tell you my favorite poker tell that relates to that? I am yeah. a poker player, but a couple of times, and the very first time in particular, I was invited to a Texas Texas Hold'em party. Yeah. So I got that little tiny, teeny, tiny book called Pex, Texas Hold'em for Dummies. It was just a little booklet, <laughs> not like a thick one. Yeah. And I took it with me, and I brought it to the table. I had read it a little bit beforehand. And then every single time I got a hand, I started looking in the book and noticed <laughs> that people, it disarmed people and they thought, oh, and then I would go, oh, like that. And then I would, 
Oh, that's such a great idea. Of course, you couldn't do that professionally, no. but that's such a great idea. I time after time, and then I would act like, oh, I, like I, I played <laughs> so dumb. I cleaned up. I think I made fifty five dollars in nickels or quarters. No, fifty five dollars. Yes, I swept it. I swept it, and then, oh, I thought you were going to say fifty five cents. Oh, no, beginner's luck. I played the second time, brought the book again. They fell for it again. Oh, but I realized my luck would be running out because then you know. But that if you have never played uh, poker and you want to have a tell, play dumb and bring. Texas hold them for dummies. That's funny. That's really funny. Another one is when you straighten your posture. A player who straightens their posture to play a hand usually means something he's at least interested in. More often than not, they even have a strong hand and they're getting ready to pull out the big guns. Ooh, so you could use that. Straighten your straighten your back when you know you have a bad hand and you could like mm-hmm. mess with the tell. Yeah, I mean that's the problem with these tells. I mean, they're putting it on the intro webs, and <laughs> now we all know the secret. So if I do this, you're gonna know that I'm faking. But well, I know that you're faking that you're faking that you're faking that you're faking. Right. Exact amundo, as the funds would say. Abrupt silence or a flood of words is another tell. A player normally talks who normally talks a lot and suddenly becomes silent usually means they've gotten a, a good hand. Same holds true for players that usually don't talk, but all of a sudden start babbling usually means they have a good hand. You know what I would think? I would think that it means that there is some cognitive friction if someone who normally talks is quiet because it means that they're probably mentally calculating what they should do. That, mm. that would make more sense. But someone who is normally quiet that talks a lot would not be the same because that has not, you usually can't multitask. So if you're talking when you have to make a lot of calculation, I would assume that a quiet person talking would have a decision. A better hand. Well, better or worse, clearly, like clearly without any calculation. Like I already know I'm folding or I already know I'm going all in. That makes sense. Someone who is normally talkative that's quiet would have some cognitive friction and need to be calculating. That's what, that's my official poker aficionado tell. And I like that. All right. That's using your psychology. Ah, number four, sound of the voice players wearing hoodies and sunglasses might feel protected from getting away from their tells, but that is not true. Often the sound of the voice tells a lot about the hand that they're playing. Players having a strong hand have an easier time talking and answering questions. Players that bluff are often scared to give away and tell, and they might sound a little insecure. Hmm. Okay. So the, the strength of the voice can give away that. Okay. I'm not sure what I do right now. <laughs> I think I'm going to fold. Yeah. A likely story. A likely story. Number four, five, impatience. A player suddenly waking up and getting impatient during a hand, it often indicates a, a stronger holding. Asking questions, the whose turn is it? And prompting the dealer to continue indicates the player is in a hurry and is ready to rake in that pot. Or they have to pee. <laughs> that could be true too. Because I'm experiencing that exact <laughs> <laughs> Hurry up with your list. Wrap okay. it up. <laughs> splashing chips. A player pounding out a bet or splashing their chips very often means they have a weak hand or they're trying to cover up by acting extra strong. If a player uses a little bit more force than he usually does when placing his chips, 
it usually means he's bluffing Mm. or she's bluffing. That's interesting. Yeah. Now I would love to go to a poker table. Yeah. Look at these tells and see if they're right. So my question to you is, when we can leave the home. <laughs> when is the ultimate question? An episode in Vegas, baby. Woo! Hits Vegas. I like it. I don't like playing poker. No. I like playing a couple of slots. There's a couple of the panda slot and the, there's one that's like a cowboy slot that I like to play. But really, I don't like to gamble. It just doesn't. I don't like, you know what? I don't really like games. I'm not a game player. I love games. But you know what I don't like? I don't like the slots because if you're just pushing a button, it doesn't feel like you have the false sense of control. Like at least with the, with the you know, back in the day when you would actually pull the trigger, you felt like you were doing something, like you could pull it harder or slower and have an effect on the outcome. When you push a button, it makes salient that you have no effect on the outcome. There's no skill. Like I always felt like pulling that bandit, pulling the, the, the slot machine thing, there was like a skill to it. I knew that there Well, but now a lot of these slot machines have little extra bonuses that are like, okay, if you push the button now, you can get this or so there is they've made it so that there's more interaction. Oh. And that's why I like those kinds, like the panda one, he like walks and then you can hit the button and if he you get it at a certain right moment then you get extra play time or whatever it is. And it doesn't yeah. feel quite as much like honking at a red light. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Here is the last poker tell. You ready? Mm. And there are more, but these are, this is just my list. Freezing. When you put in your bet and you put down your thing, then, and you just freeze, freeze. That is a tell that you could be bluffing. That would be hilarious. Like you put it down and then you start turning your head to the side. You go free. Like here. Your, your face. <laughs> that or it's a tell of something really going wrong. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Are you ready for the sort of fact? Because this one I am. This is major. This is major. This is real. Get a pen. Do you have a pen? If you're I do. If you're driving listening to this, write this down in your <laughs> whatever. Tell use your elbow to drive. Yeah. This is like Drive and write, because this is super, super important. Subjects were shown people experiencing adversity or challenging situations, like the guy, the foreman in the well. And then they saw a calm reaction or a scared reaction or a frenetic reaction. So either A, calm, B, scared, C, frenetic. 87% of the people surveyed thought that the authentic reaction was the calm reaction, when in reality, 98% of the authentic reactions were the terrified frenetic reactions, courtesy of Sort Effects. Thanks for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a few more things to let you know about. One. You can find show notes for every episode of ACLR and links to all resources mentioned at applycuriositylab.com forward slash blog. It's there that we'll wait to read your answers to each week's Curiosity Bite. Two, 
In order to avoid missing curiosity-bitten conversations, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and all the other spots that podcasts hang out and wait to be discovered. Toss up a review, especially if you have nice things to say. Finally, for all things Applied Curiosity, including information on workshops and your free membership to the Tribe of the Curious, go to AppliedCuriosityLab.com. In the meantime, elevate curiosity.